time to the Lord in prayer, shall we? So Matt will read and then Alan will follow. Our God and our Father, again, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. And as we come together as a company of your people, that today we give thanks and we sing praises to you and to you alone. We just, uh, Lord, thank you that we're able to open our Bibles this morning and to read. And we thank you for Matt coming forward to just to read your word for us. And for Alan, as he opens and teaches today, Lord, that we will have attentive ears, that we will have a heart and a passion to learn about your word and to learn more and glean more, Father. Be with us, we do ask, in your holy and your worthy name. Amen. Uh, if you would, please turn to 2 Samuel 24. 2 Samuel 24, beginning in verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, now go, therefore, throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Job said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than they are, and may the eyes of the Lord, of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. Verse 8. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, The Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? 
Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aaronah the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Aaronah looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Aaronah went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Then Aaronah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Aaron said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aaron has given to the king. And Aaron said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Aaron, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you again. I showed my wife the introduction to the sermon this morning, just before I left, seconds before I walked out the door. And her response was, I think you should pray about another introduction. She doesn't think it will go down too well. So I prayed on the way here. Nothing. So I'm sticking with the introduction. And I have perfect peace about it. So let's see how it goes. A few years ago, I read a book by a man called John Taylor called The Christ-like God. It was written in 1992. Thoroughly recommend it. He says this, I am, amo- I am amazed that so few religious people ever stop and think about God. The thought of him may be in their minds, but they do not explore it. it does not grow, is not allowed to change. Many people have lived for years with an unexamined stereotype of God but its changelessness is more like the fixidity of an idol than the trustworthiness of a living God. The true God must surely be more surprising than that, since our understanding of him can never be final. In other words, what he's saying is that God often gets confined to our beliefs, our understandings and our mind, you could say we put him in a box. Or to quote A.W. Tozer, you've heard of him probably. A.W. Tozer said, we have substituted theological ideas for an arresting encounter with God. In other words, we limit God 
to our theological ideas and beliefs, is Tosa's point, rather than experience him. Maybe you can guess what my wife had problems with. Maybe it's like, I don't know. My question for you today is, have you ever encountered God? Have you ever experienced God? Do you encounter him? Is God someone that you experience or is he someone that you simply believe in? I could use the words, but I hesitate because it can become a cliche. Do you have a personal relationship with him? Or is he someone that is firmly in your mind, but boarded up by the fixed beliefs that you have about him? Now, of course, all this sounds very provocative, doesn't it? But by the end of the chapter, I hope that you'll see why we must not confine God to our preconceived notions and theological ideas. Well, hopefully I've got your attention. The passage begins with a doozy of a problem. God incites David to take a census. And David does so. And then he realizes that in taking the census, he has sinned, a sin that God then has to punish. So our first question is, why on earth would God do such a thing? Why incite someone to take a census and then punish him for taking that census? Perhaps the word incited doesn't mean what it implies, but it does. You have a King James. Or other versions like it, he says he moved, that says he moved David. It was in the version that Matt read this morning. The Holman Christian Bible says he stirred up David. The New Living Translation, he caused David. The Good News Bible says he made David. doesn't matter what way you slice it up. Incited, moved, stirred, caused. God is causing something. God is causing David to do something that he will later punish. Now, one approach to this, and it would be interesting if you got five different preachers to preach this sermon, you may very get five different approaches. One approach to this is to try and come up with an explanation that will absolve God of the obvious problem here. But that's not my approach. If Samuel wanted us to figure this out, he would have made it clear. Walter Brueggemann is a well-known Old Testament scholar, and he says, clearly the God of this narrative will not be understood in terms of our conventional notions of God and God's morality. The God of this narrative is unfettered and dangerous and beyond our Discernment. In other words, this God won't let you put him in a box, and we shouldn't try. You see, God is not like a piece of clay who we can mold how we like. Our theological frameworks cannot contain him. 
We will all find that out one day. Another commentator on this passage says, refers to what's happening here as divine unpredictability. And another says God's actions may at times be inscrutable beyond our understanding. Even the author of First Chronicles struggled with this. There's a parallel passage, word for word almost, in First Chronicles chapter 21. It's written later, years later than this chapter, but the author of Chronicles changes it. Instead of God inciting David, it's Satan inciting David. That's far more palatable, isn't it? That raises far less questions for us. But we're not in 1 Chronicles. We're in 2 Samuel. And if we're, it's my belief that if we're going to be faithful to Scripture, we need to allow Samuel to speak for himself. So I've got this question for you. How do you feel about letting go of what you think God should be and let him be who the Scriptures present him to be? How do you feel about letting that go, opening the box? Or as Toza said, to stop, to stop limiting God to our theological ideas. Perhaps that sounds dangerous to you. But if it does, seriously, if it does, just think of someone, a group of people who did exactly that and limited God to their theological ideas. They're known as the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were very conservative and orthodox, theologically aligned, a lot with, a lot with Jesus, actually knew their Old Testaments very well, had God in a nice, neat little box. But you know what? When God showed up in human form and stood right in front of them, in front of them, they did not even recognize him. In fact, so distorted, so confined, so limited was their understanding of God that this person, God in the flesh, who was standing in front of them, they crucified and killed. You see, that's what limiting our idea of God to our theological beliefs and ideas, that's where it can take us can blind us to recognizing who God really is. First Samuel, if you remember back to First Samuel, opens with Hannah praying, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our, Lord, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. In other words, he is free. Isaiah 40 verse 14 said, we sang this in the first song, gave me perfect peace singing that this song is right on target. Isaiah 40 verse 14, whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? The answer is no one. God is not a democracy. He does not need our thoughts on courses of action that he's about to take. He does not need defending or absolving. 
God gets to do what God wants to do. That's part or all of what it means to be God. He's not someone to be controlled, analyzed, or scrutinized. God is God, and we would be far better doing what many of our songs said and simply bow in awe of him rather than trying to explain him. How would you like it if someone tried to explain you? Someone tried to analyze you and label you and scrutinize you and understand you? I bet you would end up just saying to them, just get to know me. Just spend time with me. Stop trying to figure me out and just get to know me. Well, Moving on in the passage, David tells his second-in-command, Joab, to take the army commanders and go throughout the country, enrolling all the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. You see, David's thinking of one thing at this point, himself. He wants to know how much power he's got at his disposal, and he wants to mobilize that power. Joab knows this is a bad idea and tries to convince David not to do it, but David won't hear of it. And so Joab takes his, all his military commanders and they go from village to village and town to town, enlisting and counting all the men eligible to fight. The whole exercise takes nine months and 20 days. And upon returning, Joab reports the total number of fighting men amounts to 13,000 who are able to handle a sword. And suddenly, David is conscience-stricken. And he says to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. I've done a very foolish thing. We're not told why David suddenly has this stricken conscience why he realizes now that he's sinned, he just does. This is not the end. God sends a prophet to David. Prophet says, I'm giving you three options, David. Three years of famine, three months of fleeing from your enemies, or three days of plague. Think it over. In verse 14, David said to the prophet, I am in deep distress. No kidding. He finally comes to the conclusion, let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. You see, David, an imperfect man, knows that at the heart of God is mercy. David's experienced God's mercy firsthand. Earlier in 2 in Samuel, Remember, David commits adultery with Bathsheba. He's out on the rooftop one day. He looks down and he sees this lady down there and he goes and sends for her and he commits adultery with her. Her husband is off on the front line at war, which is where David should have been, by the way. The only thing is about this affair is that David gets her pregnant. 
And so in order to try and cover the whole thing up, David gets her husband back from the battle, tries to, thinks that if he comes back for a couple of nights, he'll sleep with his wife, then he'll go back to war and he'll come back and, oh, she's pregnant. No surprises. The only thing is that this man, her husband, is, has too much integrity to come back from war and sleep with his wife while everyone else is out on the front lines fighting. And so David tries to get him drunk. Perhaps he'll just forget his senses and go and sleep with his wife. Still doesn't work. So eventually David has him sent to the front line where he will certainly die. By the end of the passage, David is a murderer and an adulterer. A murder, murderer and adulterer. I don't know if you've known any adulterers. I have. Many years ago, I won't go into too much details about it. Um, many years ago, um, this particular person left his wife for a period of six weeks, had an affair with another woman, and then returned to his wife. And one Sunday night, he turns up at church. I remember sitting in the back of the church, there's two ladies in front of me, and they're talking to each other. And one of them said to the other, I wouldn't take him back. I wouldn't take him back. But you see, that's not God. That's not God. God takes adulterers back. David goes nine months without owning up to his sin. God sends a prophet to David, another prophet, to confront him and, and tells him this Tells him, tells David, of, it's a story, but David doesn't know this at the time, tells him of a rich man who took a little lamb from a poor man. It was the only lamb that this poor man had. And he killed it for food. And when David heard about it, he was ticked off. He was fuming. He was angry. And he says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And the prophet says, you're that man. You're that man. And David responds, I have sinned against the Lord, just like we read here in 2 Samuel 24. And the prophet replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Following this encounter, David writes Psalm 51. In the first verse, David says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You see, David knew all about God's mercy. He just didn't, but he just didn't know about it. He'd experienced it personally, a murderer, an adulterer. It wasn't just a concept, a theological idea for him. He had personally experienced mercy. He knew what it felt like. And this God who does whatever he pleases, this God who is somewhat unpredictable and cannot be controlled, David knew this God personally. David was not a perfect man, but he was a man after God's own heart. And while he could not control this God, he knew he could trust him. 
And so he said, let me fall into the hands of God. Verse 15, so the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the the time designated, and 70,000 people died. But just as the angel was about to destroy Jerusalem, God tells the angel, enough, withdraw your hand. Verse 16 tells us that God relented. The Hebrew word for that word relented is repent. God repented. In other words, God changed his mind. Once again, no reason is given, but judgment is never God's go-to. It's never his default. Listen to Isaiah 28, verse 21. Isaiah calls God's judgment his strange work, his alien task. Judgment is foreign to God. Yes, God judges, but it's not his core work. It's not his favorite work. It's not at the core of who God is. And precisely, the text tells us that at precisely at the same time that God is repenting, this is simultaneously, not one after the other, at the same time that God is repenting, David is repenting. Verse 17, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep, these people in Jerusalem. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. David is brought to his knees. He's concerned. Why? He's concerned for the welfare of his people. It's an interesting turn of events. At the beginning of this chapter, we see David wanting to increase his power, but now he recognizes that he is powerless. There's one more scene. The very place that God told the angel to withdraw his hand is the place that would in a few years become the site for Israel's temple, the place of God's presence where he would dwell among his people. And David is told to build an altar there to the Lord. Final verse in this chapter says, David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. This chapter leaves us with many unanswered questions. Why was God angry with Israel? Why did God incite David to do something he would later punish? What made David realize his sin? Why did God relent? We might be interested in answers to these questions, but not Samuel. You see, Samuel has bigger fish to fry, so they say. If we go back right to the beginning of Samuel's writings, in the beginning of 1 Samuel, Israel, not quite at the beginning, but near the beginning, Israel asks for a king who will go into battle for them and defeat the enemies. Israel are tired of being powerless and helpless before their enemies. So they ask for a king, and God gives them Saul. 
2 Samuel ends with Israel powerless and helpless, not before their enemies, but before God. The lesson for Israel is it is not before enemies that they are powerless and helpless. It is before God. And that's what they need to understand. You see, they do not need a king who will go into battle for them. They need a king who will pray to the, pray for them. They need a king who will pray for God to be merciful for them. For someone to be so concerned for their welfare that that king would say, let your hand fall on me. That's the kind of king they need. So 2 Samuel ends on a note of hope. They have that king in David. But if we turn the page, you'll come to 1 Kings. And by the end of the second chapter of 1 Kings, David is dead. And Israel, from that point on, spiraled down as they experience a string of bad kings. Every now and then there's an exception. It feels a little bit like a Netflix series. Just one more episode and things might get better and, and every now and then there's a ray of hope, there's a ray of light, but, but the, general, the general direction is a downward spiral. But you see, 2 Samuel and the Old Testament is not the end of the story. Another Netflix season is coming. Stay tuned. And it's a season with a few similar themes. See if you recognize them. Jesus comes as a king in the line of David. But he's not there to lead Israel into battle. He's not there to defeat the enemy of the day, at least not the enemy that they are interested in. He's there to incite Israel's leaders to anger. Recognize that theme? For example, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus enters a synagogue on the Sabbath and there is a man there with a crippled hand and the Pharisees, right, with all their theological ideas and boxed-in beliefs about God, they're there waiting to see if Jesus will heal this man on the Sabbath. Jesus knows that what they've got in their mind. You see, the text tells us in Matthew that he's wanting to bring charges against him. And so what does Jesus do? Well, any normal human being would recognize the danger and walk away. Not Jesus. He heals the man. And in doing so, incites these men to want to kill him. Text says they went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Why would Jesus want to incite them to do such a thing? This time we have an answer. He's concerned for the sheep. He's concerned for the people. He's concerned for us. You see, he knows what sin is doing to us. He knows that it's enslaving us. 
We're enslaved by having to be this, by having to be that. We're enslaved by what people think of us. We're enslaved by having to be successful. We're enslaved by having to get good grades. You name it, we're enslaved to it. All we care about is getting rid of our enemies, the things that make us unhappy. In the current time, many people feel enslaved by lockdowns and this pandemic, and they just want it to go. Jesus also, and so Jesus knows that we're enslaved by this thing called sin that is wreaking havoc in our lives. But Jesus also knows that God's judgment is coming against those who are enslaved. He sees that we are helpless and powerless. And so what does he do? King David What did he do? He said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me. But Jesus cannot say that. He has not sinned. He, the shepherd, has done no wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? What have the sheep done? What have we done? We all stand before God, helpless and powerless. And yet Jesus says to God, let your hand fall on me. What God could you ever conceive of would do that? The Pharisees couldn't. Jesus says to God, imagine, Alan, what's he done? Well, a lot. And Jesus says in response, a lot of sin, I mean. And Jesus says in response, let your hand fall on me. We read from Isaiah before about how God's judgment is alien, his foreign work his alien task. Isaiah goes on in a couple of chapters to describe what is typical of God. In Isaiah 30 verse 18, he says that God longs to be gracious to you and rises up to show you mercy. He longs to be gracious to you. That is his heart. The preacher in me this morning wants to end with this wonderful illustration, this story, but I don't have any. But the pastor in me wants to ask you a few questions. I think the most practical thing that we can often do is enlarge our vision of God, is tear down the walls of our boxes and let him confront us with who he really is. And so let me ask you a few questions. Are you in need of God's mercy? This morning? Are you helpless and powerless for some reason? Are you struggling with sin? Are you disappointed with yourself? Do you think that God is disappointed with you? Why do you think that? Do you think of Him mainly as a judge? I've read a book earlier this year 
called With. It's a great book. Um, and there is a, um, a section in here I'd like to read to you that really um, bursts, perhaps bursts, our categories. Uh, the author talks about a group of students that he began to meet with once a week for open conversation. And he says the gatherings had only three rules. Be honest, be gracious, be present. That meant no phones and no phonies. The students determine what we discuss. Topics range from the doctrine of hell to the pressure to find a spouse. I usually facilitated the conversations, asked questions, and tried to listen without judgment. One night, the students agreed that we should talk about habitual sin. What do we do about sins we struggled with for years and years, one asked. I've just given up trying to stop, said another. In private conversations, I had discovered that some wrestled with internet pornography and others with drugs. I learned that to these students, anything sexual or chemical was seen as particularly sinful, while little self-reflection went toward other vices like anger, greed, pride, or dishonesty. To get started, let's go around and answer a question, I suggested. I don't want to know what your particular sin is. Instead, I want to know how you think God views you in the midst of your sin. The students became still. After a minute or two, the first one began to share. I think God is disappointed with me, he said. I come from a great family with godly parents. I've been given everything imaginable, including a great education, and now I'm in college being prepared to impact the world for Christ. I think God is really disappointed when I sin because to whom much is given, much is expected. God expects better from me. That's how I feel too, said another student. How am I going to achieve what God wants from me if I'm still stuck in these same sins again and again? My students were parents at a Christian college in the early 90s when a revival broke out, another student shared. Another bunch of graduates that year became missionaries and pastors. They were on fire for God. And here I am consumed by sin day after day. I don't feel like I'm supposed to be here. I know I'm not who God wants me to be. It took about an hour for everyone around the table to share. Some could only talk through the tears. In one form or another, every student gave the same answer. God is disappointed with me because of my ongoing struggles with some behavior. He expects more from me and he cannot use me to accomplish his work in the world until I clean up my act. How many of you were raised in a Christian home, I asked. They all raised their hands. How many of you grew up in a Bible-centered church? All the hands stayed up. This is incredible, I said, shaking my head in disbelief. You've all spent 18 or 20 years in the church. You've been taught the Bible from the time you could crawl and you attend Christian colleges, but not one of you gave the right answer. Not one of you said that in the midst of your sin, God still loves you. God still loves you because that's who God is at the very core of God's being is love and mercy running through his veins. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you're a merciful God. Help us to experience that mercy, to enjoy that mercy, to love that mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.